just when you thought there was no hope for baby boomers. It's the Rational Boomer Podcast. Logic, common sense, compassion. Yeah, who knew? Now, here's Mike. We are back on the Rational Boomer Podcast. Hopefully your day is going well. It is Sunday. In fact, it is Christmas Day. Now, for those of you that aren't Christian and don't celebrate Christmas, still, I wish you a happy Sunday. But my question is this for the Christians. If you are celebrating Christmas, and this is Christmas Day, what the hell are you doing listening to a podcast? This is a day where we should spend time with friends and family. Take some of the stress off. We are barraged by information from the news and politics and government, and it's very stressful. We all need to take at least one day every now and again to de-stress and just look for our joy in life. Now, each one of us have different things that we identify as joy, and we should all be going after that. Now, some of you might say, well, look, Mike, we're listening to a podcast, but you're doing a podcast on Christmas Day. And I'll tell you this, you know that I do the podcast at like midnight in the early morning hours of any given day, and this is the early morning hours of Christmas. I'm going to be up till probably two in the morning. That seems to be my norm these days. So I might as well just do the podcast. I'm here. Everybody else is asleep. It's a perfect time to do it. And as I told you in the previous podcast, if you work in radio, you learn something very quickly. If your shift happens to land on a holiday, doesn't matter. Tough shit. You're going to do your shift. So I thought I'd go along with what I've known all my life, all the years I spent in radio. It uh, was an opportunity. And more than that, I really enjoy doing the podcast. I like speaking to you folks that listen to the podcast. I'm so appreciative of it. And I think for me, Even though it is Christmas Day, I need to show my appreciation by, instead of being lazy and just not doing it and taking the day off, to actually do it. Because I am thinking about all you folks. I really look at what we do here with the Rational Boomer podcast and the TikToks, for that matter, as kind of a community. I pretty much shun and block all Trumplifucks. Most people who are on my TikToks and in my podcast are people of a like mind, friends, if you will. And um, it's even maybe gone further than that. We're all connected here on the podcast, all connected on TikTok. And uh, while I can't buy everybody gifts, logistically or financially, um, I could at least take some time out of my day to say hello to you. And uh, we can do a little bit about uh, what's going on in the news And and actually, I wanted to start this out by telling you a couple of Christmas stories. Not twas the night before Christmas or all that stuff. A couple of experiences I had, some stories from my background that I found interesting. Now, people will ask you, what is your favorite gift that you ever received on Christmas? And I have mine in mind. And I've told this story before on Facebook and other things. But when I was a little kid, I was fortunate. As much as my dad was a dick, he had some money. So I always got pretty good gifts. And my mom was a wonderful person. So she balanced whatever fucked up shit my dad did. And she made sure it was fun for us. She was the kind of mom that made sure that we had as normal a lifestyle as you could possibly have. I mean, I remember days sitting on my mom's lap and having her read to me. That seems like a simple thing, but if you talk to my wife, who's a teacher, if you want to do one thing to help your kids before they get into school, read to them. Get them interested in books. Get them interested in the stories. Read to them up until the point where they can read for themselves. And I remember my mom doing that, setting up little craft things for us, trying to make things fun in spite of a dad who wasn't always fun to be around. And one Christmas morning, I I don't know, I was maybe seven or eight years old. My brother was a year younger than me. 
And Christmas was always the same for us in our house. As I said, my folks had a little money, so it wasn't like we were struggling. But my brother and I would come down the steps in our race car footy pajamas. Yeah, seven, eight years old, we probably still had the footy pajamas. And we'd walk down the steps into the living room where the tree was. There'd be the stockings hanging somewhere, and there'd be a bunch of candy in there, which was cool. But we wanted to get to the toys. And always under the tree, there would be a lot of toys, and we were excited. We were jacked up. I feel fortunate that I can look back at my life and Christmases. I have a lot of good memories. And it was very traditional in that sense. We had, a, we had kind of a, a procedure with my family. Christmas Eve, we'd go to my mom's parents' house, my grandparents. And my aunt and uncle would be there and my cousins, and we'd have fun that day. Then we'd get in the car and go home for the night. And I remember my brother and I would be always looking up in the sky for that red light, you know, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And inevitably, we'd see a plane, and in our minds, that was Santa. So we had to get home quick and get to sleep so we could get him to stop by our house. So we get home, and we go to bed. Now, the next morning would be just for the family, the immediate family. And then later in the afternoon, I'd go to my father's grandparents' house and see my aunt and uncle on that side of my cousins. So we had two full days of festivities, and it was great fun for us when we were growing up. But on Christmas morning, we would come down the steps in our race car pajamas to see the stockings hung, check the candy, because we were kids, so we were all about candy. But the real interest was the toys, and they would be under a tree. This particular Christmas, it was a little different. We had toys under the tree, but there was this ribbon laying in the living room, just laying flat, and there was a note on it, a note written simple enough that seven- and eight-year-olds could actually read it. And all it said is, follow this ribbon. So my brother and I are all fucking jacked up. Where is this going to take us? So we start walking with the ribbon. We go through the living room. We go through the dining room. We go through the kitchen. And then it takes us to the steps to go down the basements. So we follow the ribbon down the basement. And when we get to the basement, there's these couple of sheets of plywood and a slot car racetrack is set up and put on the uh, plywood. I'll give my father credit for doing that because that took some extra effort. And these cool race cars that we could control with our handset and it would speed around the track. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself in retrospect that that slot car gift, that slot car racetrack was my favorite gift, and it's not. It's not. That was a cool gift. I mean, for kids our age, that was great fun. But as so often the case with slot cars and those slot car sets, they lasted probably a couple of weeks, and then they broke, and then they didn't work, and there would be sections that didn't work, and it was just a, you know, it just sat there after a while. My brother and I had a tendency to break shit, and uh, it was no different with the slot cars. But the real gift I received that day that sticks with me to this day is the effort my mom made. She went out of her way, and I guess so did my dad by building the track and getting it all set up and ready for us. But she went out of her way to make this fun, adventurous for us, you know? Come up with the idea of this ribbon, send note, put notes to it, and all along the way it would say, keep going, or it's just a little while now. But she made an effort that night, Christmas Eve night, to make it really fun, adventurous, and exciting for my brother and I. And we, we loved it. <clears throat> and it was a big deal when I saw it, when, 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 when we followed that ribbon. But as I got older and I looked back and I thought, wow, the slot car set was cool. But what my mom did was even cooler. I mean, that's what holidays are about, you know, how we interact with one another, what we do for one another, show our love and caring for one another. And she really did that 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 year. I mean, she did it every year, but that was a special year because it was so unusual. 
And so we got the slot cars. We played it. It was fun and all that stuff. But as I got older, I remembered, damn, I hope I'm that um, creative and thoughtful when I have kids. And I'll be honest with you, I, uh, I probably wasn't. I probably wasn't as thoughtful. I, I tried, but I had limitations because, well, I'm a guy. But I did have enough brains to marry a woman <laughs> who had the same qualities my mom had and was just as creative and just as concerned about making things special for our kids. So I know that when my kids get older, they can look back and finally realize how much effort their mom put in, much like I did with my mom. So my favorite gift ever would be the effort my mom put in on that Christmas Eve to make it special for my brother and I. Now, I've got another story, and this one involves my mom, too, but it was many years before. My mom was born in 1940. My grandfather, her father, was in World War II. He was a driver on something called the Red Ball Express. He, he was there for at least a couple of years. And during those years... While he was away, my grandmother moved in with her sister. And her sister lived in Thief River Falls, Minnesota. It's up in the northwestern part of the state. It's a tiny town in the middle of nowhere. But she took her two kids, my mom and my aunt, and went to live with them for a couple of years while Grandpa was away or I don't know if they were there the whole two years or not. I, I'm not sure. Now, her sister, they were close in age, and they were close uh, personally. And this, this sister of my grandmother had kids, two or three kids, that were friends with my mom and her sister, which was kind of nice. You know, they got to play together and all that. And... My grandmother's sister was married to a guy named Kenny. Everybody knew him as Uncle Kenny. And he was a short guy. He was like 5'3". And he was just a feisty motherfucker. He was a firecracker. He was a drinker, but not, you know, abusive drinker. Uh, he was kind of wild and crazy, constantly joking and fucking around. He was kind of a fun guy to talk to. I remember him when he was older. I met him. Uh, but... Uh, but back when he was young, he was a wild man. He was a fucking wild man. So one year, while there, my my grandmother and my aunt and my mom were staying with her sister, their aunt and uncle, in Thief River Falls, Minnesota, out in the middle of nowhere, very rural. It's Christmas Eve night. And they're all scurrying around the house. The tree is up. They're excited about presents in the morning. I think my grandmother and her sister were making food for the following day. So it was a very ideal, idyllic setting. You're out in the country. The snow's falling. Mom and auntie are making food. Uncle Kenny's sitting in the corner watching TV. Well, probably not watching TV because it was the 40s, but listening to the radio or doing whatever. The kids are playing games and all excited about Santa coming. And here's what happens. Kenny, as I told you, he's kind of a pistol. He's sitting in his chair and the kids are playing and he goes, hold on, shh, 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 shh hold on. And the kids go, what, what, what? He goes, did you hear that? And they go, no, we didn't hear that. He goes, there's something on the roof. There's something on the roof right now. And the kids are going, on the roof? Oh, my God, maybe that's Santa. So Uncle Kenny gets up, walks across the room. Now, remember, this is rural Minnesota in the 40s. There's a shotgun sitting in the corner because he probably had been hunting the day before or whatever. He walks over to the corner, grabs the shotgun, loads it up, walks outside. He's going to look and see what's on the roof. And so he does that. And then all of a sudden, the kids are in the house. They're wondering what the fuck is going on. They're sitting in there going, 
Santa's on the roof. Uncle Kenny's out there. What, what, what's, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, they hear two shotgun blasts. It was a double barrel, so there were two shells. It went boom, boom. Kenny comes back in the house, <laughs> big smile on his face, and says, I got that red son of a bitch this time. He won't be coming back. And the kids just get so upset. <laughs> they are crying. They are upset. Uncle Kenny, Dad, just killed Santa for Christ's sake. <laughs> well, Uncle Kenny had been drinking that night, and he wasn't thinking as clearly as he probably should have. I think after that, he slept on the couch for about a week afterwards. <laughs> My grandmother and his wife probably were not too happy with him. But that's, <laughs> that's one of those special touching stories that I can give you from my life, from my history. It's hilarious. And uh, I think about it every year when I have, uh, when Christmas comes around. I remember my mom telling me that story and, and she was, she was even still visibly upset about it then. That was kind of a crazy fucked up thing to do to kids. But it was the 40s and it was rural Minnesota. What, what the fuck do you expect? So that's my happy Christmas story. <laughs> anyway, we can start talking about some of the news at hand as we move through this Christmas Day on the Rational Boomer podcast. We know that the January 6th committee has released their documents, and bit by bit we're hearing more and more things coming out of it. More revelations, more evidence. And it's going to be like this for a while. This report is 845 pages, and there's a, uh, evidence that's attached to it to support what is, ever, what is said in this report. So there are people going to be gleaning a lot of things out of this. Things are going to come to light. Now, one of the gentlemen on the J6 committee, Representative Adam Schiff of California, says there has been one line of effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election that America still haven't given sufficient attention. And we're going to see a lot of this, too. There's a lot of stuff in that report and in the evidence that we don't know about yet. Schiff, a member of the House J6 Committee, addressed the panel's final report in a New York Times op-ed on Thursday. The piece focused in particular on the Republican lawmakers in Congress who voted to overturn the 2020 election. Now, he makes a good point. With all the other stuff going on, we know that, what was it, 130 representatives voted to not certify the electoral college votes? Well, that's very fucking telling. I mean, it wasn't enough to actually get it done, but still, 134 Republicans, or 139 Republicans, wanting to overturn the election. They were all on board with this. Even after the Capitol Police and Metropolitan Police put down the insurrection at great cost to themselves, the majority of Republicans in the House picked up right where they left off, still voting to overturn the results in important states. And that's what Adam Schiff wrote in his op-ed. A total of 147 Republican members of Congress voted to overturn the election results, 139 out of 221 House Republicans and 8 of 51 Senate Republicans. The committee on Monday sent four criminal referrals against Trump to the Justice Department. Now, in his op-ed, Schiff urged the DOJ to ensure a form of accountability that Congress is not empowered to provide prosecution. Bringing a former president to justice who even now calls for the termination of the Constitution is perilous endeavor, Schiff wrote. Not doing so is far more dangerous and I've said that before, there's all kinds of concerns about indicting a former president. But at this stage, with all we know, I agree with Adam Schiff that it's far more dangerous not to indict him. 
Now, in a separate op-ed penned for the Los Angeles Times, Schiff wrote that the Justice Department must hold itself to a standard it set at the beginning of its investigation into the deadly riot. Follow the evidence wherever it leads. But there is more needed to protect our democracy, he said more than oversight, accountability, and even justice. He called on Congress to take action to prevent another would-be autocrat from tearing down our democratic institutions by enacting reforms based on the committee's findings. The oversight the January 6th committee did was difficult, and the pursuit of justice may be even more so, Schiff wrote. But the steps we take to prevent another despot from subverting our democracy in the future may be the most challenging and consequential of all. And let's be perfectly honest. What what they did, the J6 committee, as much as they are exposing evidence and exposing people, one of their charges was to find out ways to shore up rules, regulation, laws, whatever it is, so this never happens again. As I've said before, a failed coup is nothing more than a dress rehearsal for a successful coup. People learn things. They made a lot of mistakes. I don't know how they failed, but they did fail. But you can be assured that the next time they try it, they won't make those same mistakes, and they will get ever so closer to having a successful coup, and we cannot afford to have that happen in this country. So Adam Schiff makes a good point. We've got members of Congress, not only those members of Congress that maybe help with the insurrection by giving tours or being in communications with the insurrectionist or whatever they did strategizing beforehand, We also have 139 Republicans who willingly and knowingly voted to overturn the election. We would expect more out of our Congress, but we got far less. What they did was incredibly dangerous. Had the Republicans been in power in the House of Representatives on that day, they could have very well voted to overturn the election. And then we would be in a much different place today. Our democracy could be gone. Our form of government, as we know it, could be gone. So it's absolutely crucial that we address those things. And Adam Schiff makes a great point. There's so many things we can focus on that are criminal or corrupt that Donald Trump did, that the administration did, or that sitting members of Congress did. But that one act of 139 Republicans agreeing with the idea that we should overturn the election, give the choice of who should be president to our sitting members of Congress, the House of Representatives, is absolutely fucking crazy. It's absolutely fucking dangerous. So I'm glad Adam Schiff brought this out. It's it's going to be hard to focus on all the different angles and things going on here. We've got everything from Donald Trump's taxes, which we'll talk more about later, um, to the insurrection, to the fake electors, to the calls to Georgia. <clears throat> and we're finding out that that call to Georgia wasn't unique. Apparently, Donald Trump was on the phone to a lot of other folks. They just aren't recorded, or those people aren't stepping forward as much as Georgia and Brad Raffensperger did. There's a lot of shit going on. And it's important we address all these things. Because if we don't, it's like cancer. If you don't wipe it all away, if you don't eradicate the body of cancer, there's uh, always a chance that it will grow and spread even more after the fact. That's why I tell people, you know, when when Joe Biden took over as president on January 20th of 2021, I think a lot of people thought, well, that nightmare is over. Now everything's going to be normal. But all that Donald Trump did, all that the Republicans did was pretty damaging to this country. It's going to take some time. Now, Joe Biden did an incredible job in the first two years. He's probably been the most successful president legislatively in the history of this country. That's admirable. 
But we still have a government that is damaged, and we have to fix it. And to be perfectly honest with the January 6th committee, just set up that opportunity to fix it. Now the responsibility lands in the hands of, uh, of the DOJ. Now they have to make people accountable, the people that were complicit in the insurrection. But we need to look at what happened in Congress there. All we need is some rogue actor come out like Donald Trump and all these people in the House of Representatives, the Republicans, only really caring about fundraising and, and elections and votes. And they would be willing to put our country on the line, our form of government, democracy itself. They would be willing to sell that out for their own benefit. That's something we need to take note of. Somebody who's willing to do that should not be in the House of Representatives or the Senate. And as I said, this takes a while. So what we need to do is eradicate this, this, uh, these political bodies of those types of people. But <clears throat> short of the 14th Amendment with some of the people directly involved, these people that voted to overturn the election, these Republicans, we need to keep bringing that out, letting people know as more and more people understood understand what happened. We need people to know that these people were acting essentially as traitors. I know that seems like a strong statement, but let's, let's be honest. If you're voting to overturn a fair and legal election and want to upend democracy and go toward fascism, what worse crime is there? I mean, all they did is vote, but they hold a lot of power in the House of Representatives. And had they had power, things could have been vastly different. So Adam Schiff is correct. We need to address that problem. That is a big problem. I think it's a problem we have in our politicians across the board, Democrats and Republicans. There are some good ones out there, more Democrat good ones than Republicans, but there are some bad Democrats too. These are people that are in positions of power. They've been elected to a, a seat in Congress, but their interest is only self-enrichment, benefiting themselves. We've got to figure out who those people are and get them the fuck out of there because they don't have a clue what their job is. This is just an opportunity for them to make more money and get more power. We've got a lot of people in Congress right now that are like that. And at some point, we need to eradicate these people. We need people in positions that understand the job and are willing to do the job. And that job is working for this country and working for the people of the country. Not just those people that are willing to stuff dollars in their pockets. And that's what we're seeing a lot with Republicans, but we're seeing it with Democrats, too. We need a change in our political process. We don't need to overthrow democracy. We don't need to undermine fair and decent elections. If we do that, there's almost no coming back from that. But what we knew, do need to do is get rid of the threat to those two things. We should protect those two things, the elections and democracy, with our lives. I mean, that's essentially the basis of the Constitution. If we focus on protecting this country, the Constitution, our elections, we can somehow expose these people that uh, either are against those things or don't care enough about them and are more worried about enriching themselves. Now, the hope I see here is coming in short order. We've talked about this before. In the 2022 election, millennials and Gen Zs came to the fight, and they're part of the reason why Republicans did so poorly in the midterms. Now, come 2024, they're going to play even a bigger role. And as we've been told, in 2028, the majority of voters will be millennials and Gen Zers. 
hopefully at that point, <clears throat> we will have a different perspective on our politicians. These Gen Zs and these uh, millennials will not accept people like that in their Congress. There'll be few that gets through here and there, but hopefully it'll all be worked out in the wash. But what we really need to do is eradicate these types of people from our government. We need to take these self-serving pieces of shit politicians and get them the fuck out. Get people who understand the job and are willing to do the job they have been given the responsibility to do. And for a long time, that's not been the case. For a long time, people have been upset by establishment politics. And that's part of the reason why Donald Trump got into office. Hillary Clinton was perceived as the, the essence of establishment politics. And that's why I say in that 2016 uh, election, this is when our politicians should take note. They didn't like establishment politics. They wanted something different, so they went with Donald Trump. They would prefer to go with an unknown as opposed to stick what they knew because they weren't happy about it. And if our politicians would recognize that, they'd say, you know, maybe we need to change things up. Of course, they picked Donald Trump because he didn't represent the establishment, and they thought, what the hell, we'll take a chance. Well, taking that chance was obviously well, or it was unadvised. It was unadvisable. It was a fucking mistake. And it was a mistake that might have changed this country forever. We're lucky we were able to hold on as much as we did. But now we need to take this as a learning moment. Don't ever put ourselves in that situation again. And anybody that supports that kind of thing needs to fucking go. All right, we will take a quick break and we will be right back. Since we're talking about representatives in the House, specifically Republicans, I wanted to bring up a guy that I fucking absolutely hate. And I've never really listened to the things he says. It's more so the way he says things. I'll explain. His name is Representative Clay Higgins of Louisiana. Now, if you've ever seen this guy, and I'm sure you probably have in various news clips and such, here's a guy who wears a cowboy hat, talks real slow, talks real deliberate, got a little bit of a southern drawl, and it looks like he's trying to play a movie character, like a cowboy or something. He tries to be very measured and say kind of clever things. He's clearly trying to create a perception of him and a persona that he wants to portray. When in actuality, he's just another dipshit Republican representative, far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but what he did the other day shows his ignorance and epitomizes the Republicans being simply obstructive, no matter what. They don't care about anything else but being obstructionist by owning the libtards. Now, this representative, Clay Higgins of Louisiana, stood up in opposition of the omnibus spending bill on Friday before a Democrat told the House floor that that uh, the bill had passed through the House, which means it only has to go to the president to be signed, and that's a foregone conclusion. This was a $1.7 trillion package. And, of course, Representative Clay Higgins, Republican from Louisiana, would be against it. They want to own the libtards. They are obstructionists. They are against everything that the Democrats want to do, and they are for nothing. They've proven that to us. Now, Higgins was one of the scores of House Republicans who declared their opposition to the bill, which is set to fund the federal government through September. As we know, they wanted the government to shut down so they could start making cuts on our quote-unquote entitlements, Medicare and Social Security. 
but this bill will fund our government through September, so we don't have to worry about that, and is expected to arrive in front of President Joe Biden for his signature, which it did, and he signed. The other GOP opponents of the spending package include Majority Whip Steve Scalise, as well as 13 current and future current and future House lawmakers who denounced the bill in a letter endorsed by House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Now, in his remarks, Higgins claimed that Americans are cold and hungry and feel betrayed by the House over the bill. He hated that bill. But then a Democratic representative stood up. His name was Jim McGovern. He's from Massachusetts. And he responded to Clay Higgins, and this is the epitome of Republican stupidity. He responded with an awkward revelation for the Republican. He said, I think I should tell the gentleman who just spoke that I'm told that his veterans bill is actually in the omnibus. He's got a bill in this omnibus that he just spoke against. (laughs) Wow. The Massachusetts Democrat then asked how many House Republicans would be speaking after Higgins. Um, And then when he heard (laughs) there would be no more Republican speakers, McGovern said, thank God. See, this is what I mean. They're only obstructionists. They only want to own the libtards. They don't even think. This guy is against an omnibus bill that included a bill that he fought for for his people, allegedly. He didn't even know that. He was talking about how bad it was going to be for the country, but he didn't even know what was in the fucking bill, let alone knowing that his own bill was in this bigger bill. This is the epitome of of, uh, Republicans. They don't think, they don't care, they just do anything that's against the Democrats and thereby doing anything that's against this country and the people in it. Got some good news for you. You know the Carrie Lake situation down in Arizona. She was running for governor against Democrat Katie Hobbs, who was also the Secretary of State, current Secretary of State. She is now the governor-elect. Of course, Katie Hobbs won the election. And, of course, Carrie Lake, being a Trump humper herself, said, Oh, no, there's election fraud. There's election fraud. Nobody really paid much attention to her because that whole election fraud thing was pretty much played out by Donald Trump in 2020. She was kind of like the boy crying wolf, you know. Yeah, who cares? Election fraud. We went through that already. 60 court cases and nobody found election fraud. Nobody has shown one shred of evidence of election fraud in the 2020 election. So Carrie Lake, of course, took this to court because that's what Trump fucks do. So Carrie Lake isn't going to be getting what she wanted for Christmas. A judge on Christmas Eve rejected all of her claims in a lawsuit that sought to overturn her election loss and confirmed that Katie Hobbs is truly the governor-elect, a Democratic governor-elect. Now, of course, Carrie Lake is Trump-endorsed. And as we look back at the 2022 elections, getting a Trump endorsement was like a like a curse. It didn't help many people at all. She lost the Arizona governor's race to Hobbs, who is set to be sworn in as governor on January 5th. Uh, she lost to Katie Hobbs by about 17,000 votes, which frankly is a little disturbing. As crazy as she is, the fact that she got that close is disturbing, to say the least. Now, Maricopa County Superior Court Judge Peter Thompson issued a decision in the suit at 10.45 a.m. on Christmas Eve, shooting down all of Lake's claims. His decision came after a two-day trial on Wednesday and Thursday in which Lake's teams attempted to convince him that a Maricopa County employee had intended 
intentionally tampered with Election Day ballot printers in an effort to disenfranchise Republican voters, and that the county's failure to adhere to the chain of custody rules for early ballots dropped off on Election Day led to thousands of illegal ballots being interjected in the system. And it's funny, when you listen to Carrie Lake or some of her supporters, they seem to have it all figured out. This is what happened. This is why they did it. And this is how she got cheated. Now, every one of plaintiff's witnesses, and for that matter, defendant's witnesses as well, were asked about any personal knowledge of both intentional misconduct and and, uh, uh, unintentional misconduct directed to impact the 2022 general election. Now, the judge wrote in his decision, every single witness before the court disclaimed any personal knowledge of such misconduct. The court cannot accept speculation or conjecture in a place of clear and convincing evidence. Thompson pointed out that in an election contest like this one, the burden of proof is on Lake, the challenger, and the proof must be of the most clear and conclusive character. And this has always been the case through all of the things that Donald Trump and Trump fucks went through, it was all conjecture. It was all speculation. And I'm sorry, that doesn't work in a fucking court of law. You need facts and evidence. And they kept saying they had it, but for whatever reason, they were never able to show it. So you have to question Is this a real thing? Well, clearly it's not. Now, of course, after this ruling, Carrie Lake will do what Donald Trump and all other Trump LaFucks will do, and that is to appeal the ruling. And, of course, what will happen is exactly what happened to Donald Trump and all the other Trump LaFucks. Now, Lake tweeted this out. She says, my election case provided the world with evidence that proves our elections are run outside of the law. Well, that's not true. The judge just told us there was zero evidence. But see, lying isn't beneath them. They're happy to lie to push along their agenda. They think if they can create chaos that they can somehow slip into the narrative and cause as much conf- enough confusion as to they have another shot. Well, that's not been the case with Donald Trump, and it's certainly not the case with Kerry Lake. Kerry Lake went on to say, This judge did not rule in our favor. However, for the sake of restoring faith and honesty in our elections, I will appeal this ruling. Well, of course you fucking will. Now, Thompson gave defendants in the case, Secretary of State Hobbs, the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, and other county election officials until 8 a.m. Monday to file for sanctions against Lake's lawyers for bringing a suit that they say she never had any evidence to back up. So that's the other side of the coin. The Democrats, Katie Hobbs, the County Board of Supervisors. They can file sanctions against Kerry Lake's lawyers. And I have a feeling they're going to do pretty well with those. And those lawyers ain't going to like it. More than 200 people submitted statements to the court attesting to their frustrating experiences to vote on Election Day in Maricopa County because of ballot printing issues that caused tabulator problems. Imagine that, 200. But still, Katie Hobbs won by 17,000, so if it even were a thing with these 200 people, and they did have a second opportunity, it still wouldn't have been enough to change anything. But nearly every one of those voters ended up casting their ballots ultimately, and unhappiness with Election Day errors didn't constitute grounds for overturning the election results. So the judge knew what the fuck was up here. And Carrie Lake can spin around and rant and rave all she wants. Fact is, very few people are listening to her. As I said, they went through this one time before with Donald Trump, and after all the claims and all the threats and all the, all the cries for help, nothing, nothing worked. And in Carrie Lake's instance, nothing will work there either because she's got nothing. 
This judge basically said, you have no evidence, so you lose. So now she wants to appeal it. If she appeals it, she's still going to have to come up with evidence, but clearly that's a problem. So the same thing's going to happen in the appeal, and then she'll appeal again, and the same thing will happen, and this will go nowhere. Katie Hobbs is the governor. She will be the governor in January for the state of Arizona, whether Carrie Lake's wants it or not. Now, Carrie Lake did say prior to this court case, I'm going to be the governor for at least four years and maybe eight years, and I'll be your worst nightmare talking to the media because she got tired of people going, what the fuck, Carrie? This is bullshit. I'll be your worst nightmare. Now, in 2023, while she won't be the media's worst nightmare, She'll be lucky if anybody wants to fucking interview her at all, whether she gets any kind of exposure at all. I'm pretty positive that someone will look at Carrie Lake as their worst nightmare. I don't know, maybe a husband, maybe family members, maybe friends, maybe the Republican Party. Carrie laid it all on the board here. She was all in. She lost big. Now, where does she go? She's a TV girl. Maybe she can go on HGTV and uh, do some cooking show. Or maybe she'll get something on YouTube and be uh, a future uh, Alex, what's his name? I don't know. But she isn't going to be governor. And frankly... She isn't going to be in politics at all unless she gets some small state house position. Now, on CNN Friday, former Defense Department special counsel and New York University law professor Ryan Goodman explained some of the incriminating new evidence revealed against former Trump, former President Donald Trump, in his role to plot the overturn of the 2020 election. He zoomed in on a call placed by Donald Trump to Ronna McDaniel, who is the chairman or chairperson of the Republican National Committee, who may be out of a job sometime soon. Now, this, of course, comes after the House Select Committee on January 6th released its anticipated 845-page report. And as I said, we are going to get bits of evidence out of this coming out in drips and drabs. It's a pretty extensive, voluminous report. And then you've got all the evidence, which is hundreds of thousands of documents. So the media and other people are going to be pouring through this, and they're going to be pulling out different things that we should all know about. And that's the good thing for this country. But in this particular instance, um, uh, this gentleman said, you see this new evidence, and in this you really do see new evidence of criminal liability here for Trump and his chief of staff, at the very least Mark Meadows, said anchor Kate Baldwin. Uh, What evidence is most damning? Now, this gentleman said, I think the most damning comes under the heading of the scheme to set up these false slate of electors, individuals from the GOP who would have been electors if Trump had won in those states to certify that he, in fact, won the states that Biden had clearly won, said Goodman. That seems to just be a federal crime that is a very, very active part of current special counsel's investigations. New evidence, brand new, that we have not seen before that directs it right at Trump and Mark Meadows. I mean, I think a lot of people saw these fake electors as something some rogue group that liked Trump put together. But now what we're finding out is that Donald Trump, the Trump administration, all the little Trump fucks around him, were kind of part of that whole strategy, that whole scheme, if you will. And apparently this new evidence is showing that. And I think it's so funny, these people who played the role of these fake electors, I'm sure they thought, you know, these are just average people on the street. These are state people. These are people who aren't necessarily po- politicians. They're just 
dentist and fucking garbage men and all those sorts of things. They thought, well, we're fighting the good fight. We're going to fight for Donald Trump. (laughs) Now they're looking at going on trial for federal crimes. This is the essence of fucking around and finding out. Now, he goes on to say, for example, that one smoking gun so far is a call that Trump makes to the head of the RNC, said Goodman. And he hands over the call to John Eastman, who is the architect of all this bullshit, to say, we want you to organize the false slate of electors. That's all we had in the past. That's what we know. We now know she calls Donald Trump back soon after the call and says, I accept your request, which means it's about him. It's not about Eastman. And there are other lawyers for the Trump campaign who say the committee that it was Donald Trump who put Giuliani in control of the false slate of electors. And what Giuliani was doing, as far as they were concerned, was executing what Donald Trump wanted them to do. So in terms of evidence... That is pretty devastating, and that is very problematic for Donald Trump. There's a bunch of other testimony that we hadn't heard before from Cassidy Hutchinson saying that Mark Meadows was significantly involved, following it closely, making dozens of calls, trying to operationalize the false slate of electors, added Goodman. I think they're in some pretty deep trouble with both of those, and I think he's right. You know, Donald Trump and his administration wanted to make it seem like they were upset about the election. But all this other stuff really had nothing to do with them. The attack on the Capitol, the fake electors and all that stuff. They weren't involved in that. But what this evidence brings out shows us that they were in fact involved and deeply involved. They were the driving force behind these schemes. And all of this is illegal. And all of this is a problem for Donald Trump, Mark Meadows, and whoever else was involved. Jenny Thomas, Rudy Giuliani, Roger Stone, uh, Steve Bannon, for that matter. Who knows? This stuff is all going to come out, and it's going to be investigated by the Department of Justice because it is a law that is broken. i got to tell you, the DOJ is going to be busier than a one-man One-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. They've got so many things that they have to investigate. And thank God they hired Jack Smith. As I've said before, I didn't think it was a good idea at first. And now I think it's a brilliant idea that Jack Smith was brought in. There are so many things that have to be looked into. Merrick Garland can't possibly do that. So to take Jack Smith and say, you focus on the top secret documents and the insurrection. That's all you do. You you investigate it, you go after it, and you let me know, meaning Merrick Garland, if we need to send out some indictments. I'll okay it, and then we'll send out the fucking indictments. The fact that Jack Smith is able to just focus on those things is invaluable, And it is a stroke of genius by Merrick Garland. It also separates the political aspect of all of this because Donald Trump being a former president. So this is the kind of thing I was telling you about. When this comes out, there's going to be little bits of information that come out and become known to the public, known to the media, and ultimately known to the DOJ. When they're looking at prosecuting like somebody like Donald Trump for insurrection, if they take the referral from from um, the January 6th committee, they need evidence to support it. Now, this is exactly what the J6 committee is providing in all these documents in this 845-page report. So this is going to get interesting. And I think this former prosecutor can see very clearly the amount of uh, exposure that people like Donald Trump and Mark Meadows have in this situation because all roads lead back to them. Now, as I've said, the interesting thing about Mark Meadows, you don't hear much about him. He didn't get indicted for not complying with a subpoena. That's weird. Well, it's not weird if Mark Meadows flipped on Donald Trump. And you can almost bet that he did. 
I mean, Mark Meadows is a younger guy than Donald Trump. He's hoping for a future. Dan Scavino, his deputy, is even younger yet. They aren't going to give up their lives and their livelihood for Donald Trump. Donald Trump wouldn't do it for them. And now they're finally seeing what's true, and they're going to flip. They're going to want to do anything they can to stay out of prison. And let me tell you this. If Mark Meadows flips on Donald Trump, he is so fucked because he is the closest one to him. He knows everything. He flips. Donald Trump doesn't have a fucking prayer. And I believe he did flip. Now, according to a report from the Daily Beast, guy's name is Zachary Patrizzo. Apparently, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene's husband isn't the only one divorcing her, as some of her biggest supporters are viciously turning on her for what they believe are her lies and betrayals. See, this is the inevitability of somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene. They can bully their way through for a time, but ultimately they will spiral and crash. And it appears as though that... uh, Marjorie Taylor is doing just that. Now, while she has been engaging in a very public war with Representative Lauren Boebert, who has plenty of her own fucking problems, but they're exchanging tweets back and forth, back and forth, and are piling on Taylor Green, angry with her overbacking Kevin McCarthy to be the new House Speaker, among other issues they have with her. Now, you see, it's almost like three factions in the Republican Party. You have MAGA. And for whatever reason, MAGA is against Kevin McCarthy. Marjorie Taylor Greene is siding with Kevin McCarthy because she's betting that he will become Speaker of the House. And when he does, she has enough clout in terms of fundraising and um, people backing her that um, she can kind of dictate what he does, take some of his power, because she's all about power and fame and money and all of that. But in the process, she's pissing off her own people, the MAGA people, because they see what she's doing. They don't like Kevin McCarthy. So now she's stepped away from this Republican MAGA party and is supporting Kevin McCarthy. So in the House, in the Republican Party, we have three factions. We have the MAGA. We have the people trying to get away from MAGA. And then we have Kevin McCarthy in the middle. He's trying to play both sides against one one another, and it's not going to work. Marjorie Taylor Greene is betting that Kevin McCarthy will get the speakership, and so she's siding with him. So we got two big factions on either side, totally polar opposites, and we have the one in the middle trying to ride the, the, ride the line or the fence, and it's not going to work. Neither side is going to support these two, and there lies the problems. Now, with Patrizio noting that Taylor Green has been conducting her social media war with Bobert, she mocked her. You remember Bobert mentioned something about the Jewish space lasers starting the fire while on vacation in Costa Rica. It's ironic that she would bring that up against Marjorie Taylor Greene when Lauren Boebert has some of her crazy comments herself. I think I might pull that out of my fucking pack and start announcing that. Question is, why are fellow extremists upset? And uh, Patrizio says that's threefold, and it involves Green's vocal support of Kevin McCarthy to be the next Speaker of the House, her public spat with one-time friend Representative Lauren Boebert, and the fictionalized uh, finalization of her divorce. And then he added white nationalist leader Turner Kanye West informal campaign associates Nicholas Fuentes additionally turned out or turned on Green earlier this month after she denounced him in late November, despite speaking at Fuentes' annual AFPAC conference months earlier in March. Like I say, Marjorie Taylor Green is going all in on this bullshit. 
they um, she's willing to fight everybody in order to get a little power, little money, and position in the House of Representatives. I don't think it's going to work for her. Certainly the people trying to get away from MAGA don't want anything to do with her, but now MAGA doesn't want anything to do with her. It's just unfortunate this didn't happen before the election because she's got two more years. But if anybody other than uh, Kevin McCarthy gets to be the Speaker of the House, she may not get what she wished for and be put back on these uh, committees that she was stripped of. Kevin McCarthy said he would, but Kevin McCarthy has to become the Speaker of the House, and that's looking questionable at this point. If a MAGA person gets it, they're going to toss her to the wolves. If the people stepping away from MAGA get a Speaker of the House that represent them, they aren't going to want to have anything to do with Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think she may just now be starting to realize that she's fucked. She can't win either way she goes. If she wanted to win, she'd have to step away from Kevin McCarthy, which in her mind is what's going to give her power because she's betting against uh, uh, everyone else but Kevin McCarthy, which is a bad bet at this point. Because if Kevin McCarthy even gets in and he gets support from MAGA, he's going to have to give away all his power which means he's going to be giving away all of Marjorie Taylor Greene's power, too. So it's a no-win situation for her. I'm glad of it. And she can fuck herself because nobody cares. All right, we're getting down to the end of this one. I wanted to bring up one thing, and this is, this is kind of interesting. With all the things going on with the DOJ and the J6 committee, we can tend to forget about what's going on down in Georgia with Fonnie Willis. Now, the Atlanta special grand jury investigating Donald Trump and his allies' illegal efforts to overturn his defeat in 2020, they appear to be wrapping up their work. They're coming to the end of this grand jury, which means the decision has to be made as to indictments, and that would suggest it's coming soon. We've always said that we thought that Fonnie Willis in Georgia may be the first one to indict Donald Trump, and it's looking more the case right now. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis began her investigation nearly two years ago and has said she will go where the facts lead her. She has also indicated she would be willing to take the extraordinary step to bring charges against Trump himself if the evidence supports such a decision. Now, the special grand juries have considered the evidence and heard testimony from dozens of witnesses, including high-profile Trump associates and top officials, Lindsey Graham, Mark Meadows. In Georgia, special grand juries are not authorized to issue indictments, so this grand jury will not be able to issue indictments. The final report serves as a mechanism for the panel to recommend whether Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis should pursue indictments in her election interference investigation. Willis could then go to a regular impaneled grand jury to seek indictments, but that won't take two years to do. That'll be a pretty quick thing. Now, there are a lot of prominent Trump allies who te- who, uh, who gave testimony. Uh, there was Rudy Giuliani, Lindsey Graham, former White House staff, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, as well as John Eastman and other lawyers who participated in Trump's attempts to stay in power. A prosecutor on Willis's team said during a hearing in November that they had few witnesses left and didn't anticipate the special grand jury continuing much longer. Now, the jurors are expected to produce a final report with recommendations on potential further action to Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney, who's supervising the panel. McBurney will review the report, and then judges of the county Superior Court will vote on whether to let the special grand jurors go or whether more investigation is necessary. Um, 
So the next step is they decide whether there's it's worthwhile to pursue indictments. Fonnie Willis then will form another grand jury, not a special grand jury, but a grand jury. That won't take as long as a special grand jury. They've pretty much done all the work. And uh, then the decision as to whether there will be indictments. So it's coming to an end. It's been a long time coming in Georgia, but we might very well see some indictments coming out of out of Georgia. I mean, here here's what we do know for sure. Rudy Giuliani was identified as a target, which means more than likely he will get an indictment in Georgia. But if Rudy Giuliani gets an indictment, you would have to think that Mark Meadows and um, Donald Trump would get indictments too, as well as the others. Now, you remember I was talking about Mark Meadows, who probably flipped on Donald Trump and may not be prosecuted by the DOJ. But what you need to understand is the state of Georgia is entirely different. Unless he flipped on Donald Trump for the state of Georgia, he could very well get indicted on state charges. So Mark Meadows has got a long way to go before he's free and clear. He was in the middle of it. He was the closest to Donald Trump, and he is complicit in some of the crimes that were committed on that day on January 6, 2021. It's going to be interesting to see what comes out of Georgia, what we find out. And it sounds like the special grand jury is just about done, so we could be hearing something any time. It may be not the final moment where the indictments go out, but it will tell us we're on the road to getting the indictments, and it's not going to be in the distant future. It's going to come soon. All right, we are going to wrap up the Rational Boomer podcast on this Christmas day. As I say, if you celebrate Christmas, I want to wish you the merriest Christmas and the happy new year. We'll talk before then, of course. But uh, I hope you take the time out to spend time with friends and family. Leave the stress of day-to-day life behind and just just relax and find joy i think that's the one bit of advice i can give everybody and whether it be christmas or just a wednesday in the middle of the year always be looking for that joy because over and above money and fame and uh, toys and material things when you're on your deathbed when your time is short you're minutes away from dying. All the things that you owned, all the things that you accomplished don't mean anything. All the toys you have will be sold in a fucking garage sale. The only thing you have left are your memories and the joy that you were able to experience in your life. Those should be your priorities going forward. Find the joy. Live your life. Stay close to your family and friends. Those are the most important things. And this time of year, Christmas, is a good time to recognize that. And change your ways if you haven't thought about it up to now. So I wish you all a Merry Christmas. I hope you have a great day. And of course, we will talk to you again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Rational Boomer Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We'll see you next time.